be seated. Well, this morning we continue on in our Spirit, our, our Holy Spirit sermon series, this series that we've called Phaseology. We began by looking at different aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We set four cornerstones there, and we've stepped into talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work in and through Jesus. We started with his incarnation. Last week, we talked about his baptism, and this morning, we want to talk about how the Holy Spirit was working in his ministry. Specifically, this morning, we're going to look at an event in the life of Jesus that we heard read this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. And here this morning, what we see is that Jesus works in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what he does. And this work in the power of the Holy Spirit, it demands a response. Now, I, I want to confess to you that when it comes to talking about Jesus and his, uh, share, or do we say, necessity for the Holy Spirit, I get a little queasy on the inside. And maybe it's just me, but when we talk about Jesus needing something, I feel like I'm walking on some dangerous ground because of what we declare about Jesus. From Scripture, we say that Jesus is the eternal Son of God made flesh. In the Nicene Creed, we pronounce that He is true God from true God, light from light, begotten, not made, of same substance as the Father. And so it makes me feel a little queasy when I turn around and say, but Jesus is working in the power of the Holy Spirit. How and why does Jesus, if He's all of these things, how and why does He need the Spirit? Am I alone in that? I can tell by your silence that I am alone in that. Fantastic. Thank you for saying no, Jeff. Appreciate that. Well, last week what we saw as we talked about Jesus' baptism, what we saw was that in order to identify with those he came to save, Jesus stepped into the River Jordan and received baptism. And we saw that as he stepped out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him as anointing to the messianic office. That is, he was anointed, he was given real equipment, real power, real strength to be the Savior King in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, like what we heard read this morning. We also, at the baptism of Jesus, as he stepped out of the waters, the Spirit descended upon him, anointing him to be the Savior King. The voice from heaven, the very voice of the Father, said, This is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. And we saw that as an appointment to that role, an appointment to the Savior Kingdom, the Savior Kingship. And so Jesus now has the Holy Spirit upon him, as real equipment to be the Savior King. And what we see in Scripture is, is this being worked out over time. In all of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'm sorry, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not John, as soon as Jesus is baptized, as soon as Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, hears the voice from heaven, we're told the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness, where he is tempted by Satan. And then the scriptures are very clear, having overcome those temptations in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, his intention is to obey the Father. The Holy Spirit then brings him back to where people live, brings him back to Galilee to begin his public ministry. 
St. Luke says that after the temptation, Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And St. Luke then records that Jesus goes into the synagogue and he proclaims that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 61. Matthew tells us, St. Matthew tells us that, that Jesus returned from the temptations and he began a ministry of preaching, a ministry of teaching, a ministry of proclamation that the kingdom of God was present to people and accompanying those proclamations was healing, healing in the power of of the spirit, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. So as queasy as it may make us feel, and I, it probably rightly so, because we want to be very careful with what we say about Jesus, we can say from Scripture that he operated in the power of the Spirit. Why? Why was he doing this? Why was he operating in the power of the Spirit? And what does it mean for us? Well, he's operating in the power of the Spirit because of the very thing that he was sent to do. Jesus is fulfilling scripture. We, we heard this morning that in Isaiah chapter 42 that there's this one upon whom the Lord has put his Holy Spirit, this one upon whom the Spirit has come, goes out as the Savior King. He proclaims justice. He does acts of mercy. He specifically says he's going to free people from their captivity. Jesus is the one doing that. And so the Holy Spirit is real equipment, real power, and it demands a response. The gospel narratives show as Jesus operated in the power of the Spirit, as he grows in popularity, he also begins to run into problems. Jesus preached to huge crowds. He, he healed the sick. He raised the dead by this point in Matthew. All while the religious authorities began to actively work against him. He wasn't what they expected the Messiah to be. He didn't keep the law with the precision that they, the Pharisees, demanded. And so while they could not deny his miraculous things, they began to accuse Jesus of being a partner with Satan. It even happens first in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus encountered a demon-oppressed man who was mute. He couldn't speak. Jesus cast out the demon. The man spoke and the crowds marveled at what he did. But in Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees responded by saying, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And upon that lemon, they sucked for the next three chapters. <laughs> Their hostility grew. So that by the point of chapter 12, when Jesus, again, a demon-oppressed man comes to Jesus, is brought to Jesus, a man who was blind. He was in literal and physical darkness. Just as he was in literal and spiritual darkness, he was blind. He could not see. He was mute. He could not speak. Matthew tells us in chapter 12 that Jesus healed the man. That necessarily in the context means he cast out a demon. Matthew tells us how do we know the demon was cast out? How do we know the healing occurred? The guy spoke. He said he could see. And the crowd, the people, in verse 23, the people, they were amazed, asking the question, can this be the son of David? Code word, can this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. 
and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus reveals the bad logic the Pharisees are operating out of. If Jesus were to be casting out demons, Satan's minions, and by the power of Satan, then Satan would be working against himself. He'd be defeating his own purposes. He'd be undoing his own work. That doesn't make any sense. He points out their bad logic. He then points out their inconsistency. If, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Apply the same standard, Jesus says. If you're going to accuse me of casting out demons by the power of the demon, then you should be accusing your sons and other people who are doing demonic uh, exorcism. But finally, in verse 28, Jesus reveals in his response what is actually happening. Jesus is casting out demons by the Spirit of God, and this is evidence that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus doing work in the power of the Holy Spirit demands a response because it shows the evidence of truth. If it is by the Spirit of God that I count, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus, as we've said, has received real equipment in the Holy Spirit to be the Savior King. And so Jesus comes out of the temptations in the wilderness. He comes into public ministry waging war in the power of the Holy Spirit against the armies of darkness. That's what's happening. When Jesus came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, he began that public ministry of healing, of proclamation, of exorcism, all as acts of war, conflict, a battle against the forces of evil that had infiltrated God's created order. Jesus says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus is the stronger man who has bound Satan, the strong man, in order to plunder his house. In the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was waging war. He's rolling back the kingdom of evil while ushering in the kingdom of God. He is doing a new thing. The new era of the Messiah has dawned and these people can't see it. The very fact that the forces of evil were being rolled back, were being rebuked, were being undone, were cast out. This was evidence of who Jesus was and of what Jesus was doing. And the Pharisees, out of willful neglect and willful flagrant rejection, refused to recognize it. The very thing itself is evidence of the truth. Maybe you guys have read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. I have. <clears throat> Maybe I'm just telling this illustration for myself to help me understand. Great, fantastic, good job. <laughs> Narnia, right? The, the Narnia is trapped in an eternal winter. It's under the power and strength of a, of a white witch named Jadis. But at one point in the story, Jadis and her minion, her dwarf, are, are traveling along on their sled, and they've got Edmund, one of the Pivensey boys, with them. But they begin to notice that something's happening in the winter. In his beautiful language, Lewis is writing that really what's happening is the spring is beginning to emerge. The snow is beginning to melt and, and grass is beginning to sprout up through the snow. Flowers are beginning to bloom. Birds are beginning to chirp. And they're wondering, what is happening? Jadis' power has seemingly been broken. The dwarf is the only one who can see it. He says to her, this is spring. 
What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed. I tell you, this is Aslan's doing. And so when Jesus comes and he's casting out demons, the spring has come. The new era has arrived. This is Jesus' doing. This is God's doing. The crowds that saw Jesus healing, the crowds that saw him exercising demons, they should have been like the dwarf and recognizing reality. But instead, the Pharisees, willful rejection, flagrant neglect, neglect. The true king had returned to Narnia, and with him came the undoing of the witch. In Jesus, the true king came into the world, and with him the undoing of the evil one. As the anointed and the appointed savior king, Jesus waged war against Satan in the power of the Holy Spirit. In this very conflict, the Spirit gave witness and testimony to who Jesus was. They should have known who Christ was by the evidence, the fruit of his doing. This is what the Pharisees could not or would not see, and this is why they're in such incredible danger. Jesus' work and the power of the Holy Spirit, it demands a response. And we see very different reactions here in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew's main focus in the reaction is really between the crowd and the Pharisees. Reading it from my perspective, I'm curious as to why Matthew says nothing about the man who received the healing. Matthew doesn't mention how this man responds. He doesn't say what this man might have thought, what he might have felt about Jesus and who Jesus was, as he, this man, was literally brought out of physical and spiritual blindness. He was brought into the light out of darkness, and yet Matthew ignores him. Rather, Matthew focuses on the reaction of the crowd, all the people, and the reaction of the Pharisees. There's a response here demanded by Jesus and his action. All the people were amazed, Matthew tells us in verse 23, having seen Jesus cast out a demon, having heard a man who was both blind and mute speak and claim an ability to see, the crowd responded with wonder and amazement. They said, could this be the son of David? Witnessing something amazing, unusual, beyond the confines of normal, the crowd is willing to at least consider the possibility of the identity of the person doing the work. But the Pharisees have a very different reaction. They were unwilling even to consider that possibility. They charged Jesus with working in the power of Satan. They said, it's by Beelzebul that you do this work. Jesus declares, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You're either with me or you're not. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. In this direst of rebukes, Jesus warns the Pharisees, perhaps judges the Pharisees, of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's helpful, as one scholar points out, to, to look to the Old Testament where blasphemy is essentially cursing God is more than words. Rather, blasphemy is the flagrant, willful, and persistent rejection of God and of His commands. And like so many different aspects of life, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this uh, persistent and willful rejection, is an external act that finds its root in an internal condition. 
It's actually what Jesus goes on to tell the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. If you read verses 33 through 37, Jesus comments that the quality of the fruit is evidence about the quality of the tree. The Pharisees, their fruit is attributing the works of God to Satan that reveals the quality of their tree is low. In attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan, the Pharisees are revealing the internal condition of a flagrant and willful rejection of God, rejection of evidence given by God of God's own work. And so Jesus says, you're in danger here. You persistently and willfully, flagrantly reject the testimony of God about what God is doing. How can there be forgiveness then? You know, it sort of makes sense to us if the Holy Spirit is the one who is working in Jesus and and, and showing evidence of who Jesus is, if we willfully and flagrantly reject what the Holy Spirit says about Jesus, there will be no forgiveness. Makes sense because if we reject the Spirit of God working in and through Jesus, then we are rejecting Jesus himself willfully, persistently, flagrantly. And there is, as St. Peter declares in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what the Pharisees are doing here is willfully rejecting what the Spirit says about Jesus and willfully rejecting then Jesus. Of course there is no salvation. If we proclaim that Jesus, as Jesus himself proclaimed, is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him, and we in turn reject him by rejecting the evidence about him, are we not then in danger? The Holy Spirit worked in and through Jesus. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, real equipment for his mission and purpose. Specifically in this context, Jesus in the Spirit was waging war against evil, and that work And the power of the Spirit demands a response. This morning, as uh, we we come to a conclusion and by way of application, I'd like for us to consider two points. We come back to that question, why does Jesus have the Holy Spirit? Why did he receive the Holy Spirit? Why did the Holy Spirit remain upon him? Again, we say it clearly. He received the Holy Spirit as real equipment, real weapons for the war of the Savior King. But I think there's a secondary reason as well. And we need to think about the fact that Jesus reveals what true humanity is to look like. He reveals what being truly human is. In the pages of Scripture, it is Jesus who is true Israel. It is Jesus who is true Adam. It is Jesus who is true humanity. And so in his life, Jesus shows us how life is intended to be lived. True human life is lived in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, aligned with God's forces in God's kingdom. And so Jesus is showing us exactly what we need in order to be truly human. Jesus is actually living the truly human life on our behalf, and then Jesus offers to give us exactly what we need through him in order to be truly human. So why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit? Real equipment. He's winning something for us to be truly human, and he's promising it to us. And that's really good news for us, because we could have a model of what it means to be truly human and still not be good enough, right? 
But if we have a model who is truly human, who lives the truly human life for us and then gives us what is needed by grace through faith, then we can actually achieve it, not by our power, but by his, right? I mean, Florida is still looking for a quarterback to be as good as Tim Tebow. <laughs> but if somebody's modeling their game after Tim Tebow without actually being Tim Tebow, they aren't going to be that good, right? The second point of application this morning is simply this, Jesus demanding a response. There's only real two options when it comes to Jesus. This one who is truly human, this one who wins our battles, who fights our battles for us. There's only, there's only two options when it comes to Christ. We either uh, accept him or we reject him. There's no plain Switzerland when it comes to Jesus. You can't be neutral with him. You can't ride the fence. He says, you're either with me or you're against me. You either gather or you scatter. And here in our passage this morning, we see three levels of reaction to his work. Again, on the one hand, we have the, the man who was demon-oppressed. We have the man who was blind and mute, the man who received healing from Jesus. And listen, we're paying attention to the text very carefully. We recognize that nowhere in the passage itself is anything said about his faith. Nothing is noted about what happened to him after this healing event. And so if we say anything about this man, it is speculation. With that caveat, I, I think we have to say that there is something happening in this man. He was brought to Jesus that reveals a basic level of trust, at least in his friends, if not in himself. There was a basic level of trust where it, maybe it was, this is our last resort, you haven't been able to be healed. None of the, the par none of the prophets, no one can heal you. The priest can't do anything for you. This is the last resort we bring you to Jesus. There's a level of faith in that. Again, this is speculation. But on the other hand, we have the Pharisees who react and respond to Jesus with rejection, with willful, flagrant rejection, which is clearly stated in the text. They see the miracle. They see darkness rolled back by the light. They see the demon cast out. They see the evil overcome by the goodness of the Holy Spirit in the work of Jesus. And yet they can't deny what has happened, but they flat out refuse to acknowledge the true reason why it happened. This is the flagrant, willful, and persistent rejection of Jesus. This rejection began earlier than this event of Matthew 12. This rejection continues after this event, and even after the resurrection of Jesus, even after his ascension into heaven, even after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church in the book of Acts, this rejection of the testimony, the witness of the Holy Spirit, it continues. And so you have either faith or rejection. And let me say this as a brief aside this morning. I know that there are some times in our lives we become a little bit paralyzed or concerned about whether we've ever committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let me just say this. The very concern that you have reveals that you have not. Right? The persistent, willful rejection of the Holy Spirit would never be concerned about whether it had committed it or not. Right? Does that make sense? And so we're either going to respond to Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in and through Jesus with acceptance or with rejection. It's one or the other. It cannot be some neutral ground. But there is a third level of reaction in this passage that we need to pay attention to. This is the reaction of the crowd. 
The crowd's response is different than the man who received healing. It's different than the Pharisees. The crowd's response is not what Jesus rebuked. The crowd responded with wonder, with a willingness to ask the question about who might Jesus be. The question can be a good thing. And folks, if I could say that there is some kind of secret sauce to the Alpha Course, it's here. It's in this middle area of wondering. Helping folks with questions about life and meaning and purpose interact with Jesus and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Folks who perhaps have had a little bit of experience with the church, maybe they've heard about Jesus, they're not quite sure what to do with him, they've not come to a point of faith, they've not come to a point of outright rejection, they're willing to weigh the evidence, that's where Alpha makes its money, so to speak. And that's the reality for us. This is where most people live. In a world that is rapidly becoming de-churched or ex-churched or just flat-out unchurched, most people do not object to Jesus. If we talk to them about who Jesus is, we reveal the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus, we prayerfully entrust them to Jesus, we can answer questions because they're wanting to know. And so this question, this willingness to wonder, perhaps can lead the crowd or summon the crowd to pursue an answer, to stand at the foot of the cross and with that centurion say, this is the Son of God. There is also the possibility that having asked the question, they could end up going the way of the Pharisees with willful and flagrant rejection. We recognize that. What we see in all of this, Jesus operates in the power of the Holy Spirit as truly human. He operates in the power of the Holy Spirit as real equipment for his war against evil. And his work in the power of the Holy Spirit demands a response. And he still demands a response today. Jesus has life to give. Jesus has the Holy Spirit to offer. Jesus operated in the power of the Holy Spirit as the Messiah, the servant king, fighting against evil on our behalf. And his work is completed, but he still offers that Holy Spirit and life adopted to the Father through the Son in the Spirit to all who believe in him, all who trust in him. And so really, when we come down to it this morning, we say this, Jesus' work in the power of the Holy Spirit, it demands a response. How will you respond today? Perhaps it is that for the first time, you are recognizing and trusting that Jesus is the Savior King. Perhaps it is that after a period of wandering and wondering, you're returning to the Lord. Perhaps you have questions. Perhaps it is that you have already recognized Jesus as Savior King, and today you simply want to offer him thanksgiving and praise. Make no mistake about it. Jesus' work in the power of the Holy Spirit, it demands a response. This morning, we have a wonderful opportunity to respond to the Lord. We're going to, in a few moments, sing praises to the Lord. We're going to, in a few more moments, have a time of communion, come to the rail, a wonderful position to respond to the grace of the Lord. We have prayer teams during our Eucharist time wanting and willing to pray with you and for you. This morning, we have Deacon John with us, and so during our Eucharist time, Father Ethan will be freed up to pray for you and with you. There's a wonderful opportunity to respond to the power of the Holy Spirit in the work of Jesus today. The question is, will you? And how will you? respond with trust with praise with thanksgiving with submission and love come jesus work in the power of the holy spirit demands a response and i've said this to you in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen
Holy and gracious God, we praise you. We give you thanks that you sent Jesus in the fullness of time. The eternal Son took upon himself the flesh of the incarnation to be truly human, to work on our behalf to destroy the powers of evil. We praise you for the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus. We praise you that his work to save takes him to the cross. We praise you that the cross does not end in death but leads to resurrection. We praise you that resurrection leads to ascension and ascension leads to Pentecost. We praise you that Jesus is good for his word. And so we pray as we stand together and sing that you would make much of Jesus before us, that we would recognize the work of the Spirit in Jesus and respond appropriately this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.